promotion and graduation ceremonies are taking place. Teachers are finishing up paperwork and closing up their rooms. Parents are lining up activities to keep their busy children, their children busy, and vacation plans are being put into place. The official beginning of summer may be still nine days away, but for all intents and purposes, it's here now. We even had a taste of sunshine and warmer weather maybe a couple of days ago, right? More coming, I hear, this week. It's a time of transition for the church as well. There are two major cycles in the church year, the Advent Christmas Epiphany cycle and the Lent Easter Pentecost cycle. Last Sunday, Pentecost was the 50th and final day of the Easter season, and the next major season won't begin until, are you ready? December 3rd, six months from now. So what's in between? A season called, believe it or not, ordinary time. It's called that because the Sundays in this season, as well as the period between Epiphany and Lent, are counted with ordinal numbers. Um, technically, we would say, when we're in Easter, we would say Easter 1, Easter 2, Easter 3, those would be the Sundays. But when we're in ordinary time, we say today, for example, is the first Sunday after Pentecost. Next week will be the second Sunday after Pentecost, and so on. So that's the technical reason for the name ordinary time. But I think it is a very appropriate name for this long stretch of normal, everyday life between the major celebrations of the church. Not that there isn't a lot that goes on during these six months. Every day, people, you and I, are working, shopping, eating, loving, sleeping, playing, making decisions, struggling problems, sharing joy. In other words, we are living out our lives, and that means we are dealing with Raise your hand if you have said or thought during this past week, I just don't have enough time. Uh -huh. One or two of you. Mm -hmm. Well, now, it's not true for everyone, but for most of us, it seems as though time just slips through our fingers. And the older we get, the faster it goes, right? And yet, each one of us has the same amount of time as every other person. 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 days a year. Our problem isn't really the amount of time we have, it's how we make use of that time. It occurred to me that it might be helpful to go back, all the way back, to the beginning of time to see what wisdom we might glean from the creation story in the first chapter of Genesis. Now bear in mind that this chapter is not meant to be a scientific document. It is not a historical account of the beginning of the cosmos. It was not written to explain how the universe came to be. It was written to teach us about who God is and who we are in relationship to that God and to the world around us. So let's look at this chapter. The first thing that this story tells us is that the cosmos in which we live actually had a beginning. Genesis 
verse 2, 1, 2, describes the earth as shapeless, lifeless, lifeless, a void surrounded by or submerged in the deep, dark, turbulent waters that later came to be identified with chaos. But even before the beginning, God is present. For we are told that a wind or spirit from God swept, hovered, or brooded over the deep, depending on which translation you read. I actually like the wind, the wind of God brooded over the deep. Then that brooding God speaks, and suddenly there is light. But in that moment, God just doesn't create light. He also creates time. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he calls night. And there was evening and morning, the first day. The very first day. And it was good. God goes on to create the sky, which separates the dry lands, but the rain and the snow and the hail from the oceans and the lakes and the dry land underneath. Vegetation emerges from the land, and as God's creative activity continues, the days are counted from evening to morning, from sunset to sunset, as in the Jewish tradition. And during that process, God continues to shape time. On the fourth day, for example, God creates what might be called a celestial calendar. Sun, moon, and stars are formed, and suddenly the world has seasons. And God saw that it was good. God continues to act within the constraints of time as birds and insects, fish, and land animals are formed. And then on the sixth day of creation, God does something very different. God says, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. God chooses to make creatures who are somehow like God's own self. And what's more, God chooses to share power with these creatures. Like the animals before them, men and women are told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They are, but they are also given another task to subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. This may sound as though God is giving humankind permission to use the word earth in any way it chooses. However, in his commentary on this passage, Terence Freitheim indicates that the Hebrew word that we translate as dominion infers caregiving even nurturing rather than exploitation. Likewise, the command to subdue the earth indicates that humankind is to help the created order develop into its fullest potential. It's almost as if God created human beings to be surrogate parents of the earth and its creatures. Not only are they to care for the world, but they are also to take part in the ongoing act of creation. It's a big job, even for God, it seems. For six days, Genesis tells us God creates this world, and after surveying all that had been done, God declares the creation to be very good. And then, satisfied with his work, God chooses to do something surprising. God 
rest. God takes a nap. God kicks back. God rests. And God finds that the act of that Sabbath rest is so important that God blesses that seventh day and calls it holy. When I read this story of creation, I am struck first by the rhythm of God's work, brought out in the repeating pattern. There was evening and morning, a first, second, third day, etc. And I notice that God focuses first on one aspect of creation and then on another, light and dark, day and night, sun goes back and forth. And each one receives God's full attention in almost dance-like fashion. How different from my own life and perhaps yours in which I attempt to focus on multiple activities and sometimes multiple people at the same time. Each day on God's calendar held only one or two tasks. Mine, on the other hand, is full of activities and events, none of which receive my full and complete attention. Whereas God carefully completes one task before beginning another, I sometimes find myself shifting from one job to another to another in a frantic effort to get something, anything, done. What might happen if I simply set my mind to doing one task at a time? How might my relationship with others be enriched if I chose to give my wholehearted attention to each person that I meet? For that matter, how might my faith be enriched if I chose to focus on my relationship with God and God alone, even for just a few minutes each day? It might be worth my and our while to take some time and reflect on those questions. In her commentary on this passage, Debbie Thomas, writer Debbie Thomas points out that God also took time to look at and reflect on his work. She writes, and God saw. Well before his work is done, he steps back to behold all that is taking shape before his eyes. Like a musician who thrills at a swelling harmony, like a poet who gasps at every beautiful turn of phrase, God lingers over his creation. Every leaf, every wing, every stream, every child. He's not in a hurry. And his interest in the world is far from utilitarian. God's is the gaze of the artist, keen, perceptive, and patient. He observes, he attends, he notices. I come from a God who pays delighted attention. How seldom we pause and reflect, not only on our work, but also on the world around us. I wear a pedometer, and when I record my steps, um, I have the opportunity to select certain healthy habits to track along with those steps. One of them is called Mindful Minute, and it asks me every night, did you take a moment to be mindful today? There are some days when I truthfully can't answer that in the affirmative. Days when I haven't looked up the sky, 
or take a deep breath of fresh air, or pause to admire the beauty of a flower or a face. Days when I haven't taken the time to notice the goodness in the world. And there is goodness. In spite of everything that is happening in the world in our, and in our lives, there is goodness and beauty and joy. We have the time to notice this if only we choose to pause and reflect and give thanks. Take a moment right now and just look around you. Look at this room in so, which so many people have, as you can turn around, have worshipped through the years. Look at the cross that we love and the windows with all of their beautiful symbols and look at the faces around you. It's okay to do that. How good it is to be with each other. How good it is to be with the God who loves us and wants us to notice all of the wonderful work that God has done for us. Debbie Thomas also writes this. I come from a God who rests. Honoring this is no small feat in workaholic America, where every hour of every day is measured in profits gained or advantages lost. For me, the Sabbath doesn't come naturally. I forget about it. I fear it. I resist it. To remember that God rested is to be both startled and humbled. How dare I, not, how dare I claim not to need a break when God himself took one? The Sabbath is the only thing in the creation account God calls holy. I would do well to pay attention. The God who dances for the work of creation also stops to rest. How difficult this is for us, for me, and yes, oh, I'm preaching to myself today a lot. Rest, relaxation, Sleep, all are critical for life. Jerry, believe me when I say that I will never condemn you if you nod off while I preach. If this is what you need to do, I am glad to have given you the time in which to do it. Focusing on one thing at a time is helpful. Pausing to pay attention and reflect is a blessing. Rest is not just needful, it is a holy gift. Along with all these, the creation story of Genesis 1 teaches me one more thing about time. That every moment, every hour, every day, in all the times of our lives, God is with us. God did not create the world and then leave. The witness of all scripture is that God's creative work is ongoing and that it takes place within human history, within time. We see this most, dear, most clearly in the gift of Jesus. The opening words of the Gospel of John parallel those of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What came into being was life, and the life was the light of all people. And a little further on it says, 
the Word became flesh and lived among us. In Jesus, God physically entered human history. Like us, Jesus was born, grew, and died. And like us, he lived within the constraints of time. But like God, he focused his attention on the work and especially on the people at hand, even when they interrupted that work. It has even been said that Jesus did his greatest ministry in those interruptions. What could we learn from that? Like God, Jesus took time to pause and reflect and pray and, yes, to rest. I remember the story of Jesus in a boat with his disciples in a storm, and they are disturbed because he is sleeping. He is resting. Jesus' final promise to his disciples and to us is that he will be with us always, even to the end of time. And so it is. Even in the most ordinary times of our lives, our God is with us, creating, redeeming, and sustaining us. In that promise and that grace, we may work and play, rest, and rejoice. Thanks. Thanks be to God. <laughs>